Part 3 with Chris Pearce explores the challenges surgeons face not operating for prolonged periods of time. We also discuss his fears and hopes for the future. So there's been some questions raised around the fact that, as I say, we're all sitting, it's not that we're sitting around doing nothing, we're actually getting a a great amount of time to catch up on all the other stuff that we needed to catch up on. Um, But from, you know, we are a very manually dexterous skill set. Do you have concerns, because some concerns have been raised here that surgeons are going to have to kind of get back to operating and how we actually do that? that and is there a framework or guidance or training that issues around that well it kind of depends how long you've been away and what level you're at beforehand i guess i mean i i um, I mean obviously i've done much much fewer operations than i would have done uh during this time but i've not done none um and you know i remember having you know i had i had was it two months or so off between being an LAT registrar and being uh, getting on the rotation? And I went to India and basically did nothing for a while. Um, I remember coming back and being quite nervous about doing a hemiarthroplasty on my own because um, I hadn't operated for two or three months. Um, and at that stage, at that you know, in my career, that actually really mattered. So uh, although it's quite a you know straightforward operation, very much a registrar operation, I was um, which I was fairly confident to do prior to going. I, I wasn't all that confident when I came back, so I got I got one of my registrar colleagues to come with me and just make sure I didn't do anything stupid while I was doing it. And of course, as soon as you do the first case, you're kind of back to where you were. So like maybe for trainees, it, it might be more of an issue. I think for us, it's probably not so much of an issue. I mean, you know, again, especially in foot and ankle, we do. I mean, I've done three total ankle replacements since I've been here in eight years, um, and I and actually none of them were my patients. All three of them were patients that were put on the list by somebody else, and then they asked me if I'd come and do it for them. Um, and uh, I probably would have fused at least two of them. Uh, but, but you know, it's, it's a bit like riding a bike once you get to a certain level of experience, I think. I'm not saying that I'm you know, awesome at anchor replacements or anything, but, but I don't think my, my the one I did here, having not done one for two years, was any worse than the one I've done previously. Probably just shows what the previous one was like rather than... <laughs> And I think that's where we do differ slightly. We're much more like the hand surgeons uh, or or plastic surgeons in some ways versus the hip and knee guys or the cardiothoracic guys who are doing the same operation. You know, they're they're much more repetitive in uh, and have a much smaller uh, repertoire of procedures that they do. And I think um, main reason for choosing foot and ankle in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's it's the variety but also the the flexibility with skill set that you need to you need to adapt um, sorry lizard just ran over my foot i'm sitting outside in singapore sorry <laughs> just checking it wasn't anything a bit more dangerous than that. It was um, yeah. um and again it's you know as everyone's got so much time to work out how we restart things i'm slightly concerned that there's um you know, a reaction that we we get bogged down in even more red tape on the other side. You know, whenever something bad happens, there's a reaction. So when shipment happens, there's revalidation. It's those kind of things. Infection control nurses appear whenever there's a slight whiff of an infection. Though interestingly, in COVID, I've not seen an infection control nurse at all. Um, so, um, you know, there's been some, and again, it's not guidance or guidelines, but there's been some suggestion that it should be two consultant operating because as, and I think a lot of that, you, you talked about being a lab, but I think quite a lot of this come from 
um, some of the female surgeons when they go back after maternity leave, particularly if it's been an extended period, that you would buddy up maybe for one or two. I think that makes sense, but I, I'm cons- I'm worried that that may become something that is you have to have done X number of procedures with somebody that then signs you off. And I think as consultants, that's not necessary. Yeah, well, I mean, we have that anyway here in Singapore. You know, we have this thing called credentialing where you're, you know, certain operations are specifically credentialed for ankle replacement being one of them. You know. um, and actually, I, I, I have no issue with two dual consultant surgery. I think that's a great way forward. And I actually still do that now. I, mean, I have a really complex case, like a really difficult peel on or I mean, these ankle replacements I was talking about, you know, the one, you know, we haven't done it for a while. Having a second consultant there is just turns a sort of slightly um, stressful time into a stressful fun. situation into quite a fun situation, you know, and I'm sure the outcomes are better. Yeah. Um, as long as you work well with the person you're working with. Um, out here, it's Anthony Gardner that I tend to do stuff with. And, you know, we do like complex tibial plateaus and things together as well. And I think we complement each other very well in that, in that respect. So I, I, I'm, I'm all for that in a way. I know that, you know, the, but the difference is, again, like I said to you earlier, that the, the workload here is less. You know, I probably do less than 400 operations a year here. I think the year that I left the UK, I did six, you know, seven or 800 operations that year. So, you know, the, the opportunities to work together here are, you know, are easier because we're not quite as busy. I, you know, I don't know about you there. But certainly, I think if you've been away from it for a long time and, and you're, you know, you need to be a bit confident to be able to do an operation. As soon as you lose a bit of confidence, I think it makes you more likely to make a mistake. So yeah. I, would, I would be all for that. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm exactly the same. You know, when we've got when we've got cases, partly because of the fact that we don't have trainees, it's uh, I'll get another consultant and a lot of the revision hip surgeons already do quite a lot of that um, for the very complex cases. It's and, I, and as long as it remains that it's something that we as the clinicians have the flexibility to decide uh, how we do that, as opposed to it being imposed on us, that I think that's the the bit that I would be I would be concerned about. Is that yeah, well, certainly in Singapore, we've got no plan to impose that on anybody. Yeah. So, you know, what would you say now, having gone through sort of six months for you of COVID, um, your sort of fears are about the next eighteen months? Um, well, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we we're, we're coming out the other end of it a little bit. Um, you know, fears professionally, I don't, I don't have that many really. I think, you know, maybe this, you know, I'm slightly worried that Singapore will run out of money and get rid of all the foreigners. Maybe, <laughs> it's not, uh, you know, I don't. Think if, if Singapore runs out of money, we're all stuffed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not too worried about that. I, I think it'd be a shame if um, conferences all, you know, or lots of them went to digital, you know, not face to face. I think. Um, you know, and I, th- I think also patient consultations, you know, there, there's a place for uh, digital consultations, but there's not. That should never replace a proper face-to-face consultation with a patient ever. So maybe I worry that, that things will be um, ad- adopted too, you know, gung-ho, you know, and saying, well, it worked during COVID, so they'll work afterwards. But, you know, these are, we have to remember that these are not, I mean, this is not an ideal situation even now, is it? You'd much rather be having a beer with you and you know where you are than, than talking over the, the internet so um yeah i don't know really yeah i think from i think there's some good bits that we definitely can do and 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 you're right you know following following some of the patients up um can be done much more like this again there's over here there's definitely quite a big anxiety with patients about coming into hospital um so if they don't have to come in they would rather have a have a conversation with somebody but 
I'm like you, I think, you know, medicine in general is about people looking after people. It's not about technology looking after people. Uh, I think there's definitely bits that can can help with that and improve on it and improve on outcomes. But again, I'm I'm slightly concerned that there's a reaction that, yeah, we that's what we did during COVID and it worked. So that's... Yeah. That's the way that we're moving forward, particularly in the NHS. I think you know because what about the NHS hotline? I mean, that didn't really change much. They did it. I mean, that was coming yeah. in when I was yeah. when I was um, just about to leave. You know, was it one one one? I can't remember that. Yeah, Something. which yeah, actually right. came into so the, the first time it really came into its own was during COVID because that's the you know when you got had symptoms you phoned one one one, and it took some of the pressure off of the GP practices. Um, so I, if anybody says anything, you know, that vaguely alerts any sort of alarm bells, then, you, you know, you say, well, you need to come to hospital. Yeah. So, so you know, somebody says, well, you know, I think I might have broken my toenail. Then you say, okay, fine. You know, thank you. Remember, anybody says, oh, I've got this slight pain in my chest. You go, well, come in, you know, because you can't. So, so, you know, it might take away the sort of, you know, 5% maybe of, of cases that didn't need to come in the first place. But I think, generally speaking, in terms of trying to replace what we do on a day-to-day basis, it's not going to take a huge amount away. And when do you think you'll get back up to 100% activity for your elective service? Well, actually, I mean, it, it really depends on how... So, you know, in Singapore, they've got these different lockdown, well, they call it circuit breaker, but translated from Singlish into English, it means lockdown. Um, so... So the first easing of the of the circuit breakers starting on the second of June, but actually it makes no difference at all. It's just you know, it's, well it does a bit because some of the schools are going back actually, but but none of the bars or restaurants are open. So it's not much difference to me. Uh, in the th- in the third phase of reopening, they're going to open restaurants um, and bars, and and then you know in the final phase they will open uh, everything. So it kind of depends on how many community cases there are in that time. I think we've been lucky in that very few of these foreign workers. Uh, they call them here have become really ill you know we've had almost 30,000 infected and there's only 23 patients that have died in Singapore and wow you know even at the moment there's 33 I think there's of the active cases there's something like 25,000 active cases there's only um, seven in ITU and there's only maybe a thousand in hospitals and not even probably not even a thousand you know most the vast vast majority of them are in these isolation facilities and are not ill wow okay and, and I, you know, again, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and reading a lot about COVID. It seems like it's a slightly different disease here than it is in Europe and, uh, and New York, especially. I don't remember the rest of the US. But apparently there is some sort of um, point mutation on the, on the virus that, that, you know, most of the ones, I can't remember which one it was now. Um, anyway, I'll sound stupid if I try and say it. But anyway, you know, the one, the one here and the one in China... Yeah, um, seems to be less virulent than the one in the UK and the US, and only one percent of the people in China have the the one that is in the UK and the US. Um, and, and I think it must be the same here because the the, 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 the the proportion of people that are very ill is much lower here. Right. But then, of course, the the denominator is much higher here because we've done active testing, whereas in the UK they've done bugger all testing, as far as I can tell. Certainly in the initial phases. Um, so you may find that after country's already had it and is immune yeah like you <laughs> yes i wasn't tested but i'm pretty yeah. sure i'm pretty sure that i had it um yeah. yeah and i wouldn't rush to have it again but um they um yeah i mean i think one of the the big challenges there was a there was a survey done uh, recently as to when does the uk think the elective orthopedics will get back to 
25% of, of what it was doing, you know, and there's about 60% of people polled said that they don't think that that will be by the end of this year, if ever. Um, do you think you'll get back to full capacity? Yeah. Yeah, and- no, I do. I think um, I'm really hoping that we will be pretty much back to full capacity by August. And clearing your backlog and your, and your you know, the, the people that have piled up, is there a... Is there a plan to work through that? You know, are you going to be doing... Yeah, like I said, I mean, we, we'll start off with the day surgery cases because that, that doesn't... or the DS23 cases, yeah. so that doesn't affect the, the bed occupancy. Uh, and then after that, it will just be on a... You know, obviously, the more urgent cases done first, but the, the ones that have waited longest will get done. Um, but again, I, I'm, I'm sure our backlog is nothing like yours would be. Um, yeah. I reckon I've probably got maybe 20 or 30 patients that are sort of... that were listed for surgery that haven't had it. And I've maybe got another 10 or 20 that I didn't bother listing because I knew I wouldn't be able to do it. But that's not that many. I mean, you can clear those in four or five weeks. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I've got, I mean, my waiting, I went through it. There's, I think there's about uh, 80 on it, um, most of which is big complex stuff. It's not sort of bunions. And then in the other sector, I had um, probably about half that again. Um, so, uh, and there's four foot and ankle surgeons in, in my county. One of our big problems is the diabetic patients. Although interestingly with the diabetic patients, we found that because they've been at home shielding and, and, um, not going out, their ulcers have healed. Really? Yeah. So we're just about to start, start looking at them because they, they are people that are recurrent ulcerators. Um, but they've, but they have healed during this period. So actually, if you were going to operate on them, now would be the the ideal time to do them when they've got better soft tissues. Mm. Um, and again, if you could do some of that MI, that would be you know less invasive day surgery stuff. Um, so we're we're just it's not just that they're scared to come to the hospital because they might get COVID. They're, they're actually... a lot of them are terrified, but they're they're getting checked up. So the the podiatrists are doing virtual um, virtual consultations with them and and checking in with them. They interestingly, so where patients were coming on a weekly basis for dressings. Uh, they gave all the dressings to the to the patients who now have family members at home because half the families of um, their partners have been or, or spouses have been furloughed. Um, so they have somebody at home that's able to help them with the dressings. Um, and because they're not going out, you know, they they're, uh, tend to be in areas of higher social deprivation. Um, yeah. And so they're living in small spaces they're not they're not going out doing big walks around wherever they they were in fact the only people that we've seen that have had a charcoal develop are people whereby there was one guy who his wife um had gone on they had another property in spain he'd gone she'd gone to spain and got stuck there couldn't get back Uh, and then he got furloughed from his uh, job which was a daytime job where he sat on a he drove something um, And uh, so now he's at home having to go out and get his own shopping and he's on his feet the whole time. And now he's got bilateral charcoal where previously it was, it was all pretty well controlled. Um, But, but most of them uh, otherwise have, have anecdotally healed, but because we know that they're they're already recurrent ulcerations, I'm pretty sure that we've not changed any of the mechanics of the pressures and um, they're just, you know, they're already in optimal orthotics. They're just going to break down as soon as they start getting out there. So what I'm trying to do is to 
to look at that cohort of patients that we know because we've actually got a really good database uh, where they're all tracked that database exists and has done for 10 years um, and we can stratify patients into low medium and high risk so the low risk people who usually get an annual check with the community podiatrist we know that at 10 years they do not ulcerate they they the very few of them also get ulcers the medium to high risk which is all to do with peripheral vascular disease um weight all that kind of stuff they um they do deteriorate so it's that group that are in the sort of amber if you think of it as a traffic lights uh, teetering on the red bit that we're wanting to try and get hold of and and actually mm. look at their pressures and in, and intervene early with them i think so that we stop them going on to ulcerate um, yeah. So that's a bit of fun. Um, the other thing that we're trying to look at is also, again, um, with things like, you know, in, and you'll know in the UK with um, ankle sprains, as you say, they, they, they go from, you know, just a, a small twist to something that's really much more complex that if left untreated will ultimately down the line lead to some, you know, significant deformity plus or minus arthritis. So what we're trying to, again, look at that is how we disrupt that very traditional model of, you know, you get a sprain, you get told at six weeks you do this, at 12 weeks you do that. Um, and it's prescriptive based on slightly, I think, outdated ways of orthopaedics working. Um, and again, that we're working to manage clinic space and, you know, what the NHS can deliver or what the clinic to, can deliver. Um, as opposed to that's where I think some things with apps and technology and tracking people's activity and and are they getting back to what they used to do before? I think some of that technology could be harnessed, particularly yeah. for the for the weekend warrior or the athlete, because def, I, I don't think many would disagree that it's difficult for um wellness injuries if you like so sporting injuries in particular to get managed in the nhs in a timely fashion and um, i think yeah. there's real challenges around that yes yes i can imagine yeah we don't have that problem here yeah next time chris tells me what the humanitarian side of medicine means to him In a career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon working both in the national health service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way. This moment in time has brought fear, but also hope and most importantly, an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies and not the media, to decide what our collective future should be. You can follow Songbirds and Sirens via Facebook, Twitter or on Instagram. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, please get in touch. Music